For the preaching of God's holy word, please turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 7, and it is verses 14 through 24. John chapter 7, from verse 14 all the way to verse 24, and this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. So Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, and it says in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If, anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." Congregation, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, after Jesus had concluded his Galilean ministry, we saw him moving south again to Jerusalem and attending the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, where he faced divided sentiments of the people there. Some said he's a good man, and they meant it, uh, as it seems, by worldly standards, as we say today, well, he's a good guy. Others said that he was a fraud who deceived the people, but seemingly none of these two groups had it right. And in today's text, we read that during this feast, Jesus went up to the temple and started to teach now, we must not picture this as Jesus interrupting a, a worship service, capturing the pulpit, and suddenly starting to, to preach or to teach. That was not the case at all. He most likely, and this was very common, uh, stood or sat somewhere in the court of the Gentiles when he began to teach. You, you must not uh, visualize the temple like a cathedral, and he went in uh, and interrupted something and started to teach. It was common. Uh, for teachers or for rabbis to teach in the court of the Gentiles on the outside of the building itself. And people must have gathered around him and listened. We do not know what exactly the Lord Jesus taught as it has not been revealed to us, but we do know that some Jewish leaders must have been among the audience. As we read in verse 15 that the Jews marveled 
saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, these Jewish leaders who were apparently among the listeners there at the court of the Gentiles were exceedingly hostile to Jesus to begin with. And yet they marvel, or you could translate, they were amazed because of Christ's teaching, because of his knowledge, because of his understanding. Can you imagine what wonderful teaching that must have been that even Christ's fiercest enemies could not contain themselves but marveled at this man's teaching? And they say, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now what does this mean? First of all, the term this man could also be translated like this guy or this fellow. It's a highly derogatory expression that shows us just how surprised these Jewish leaders must have been about Christ's teaching. How does this fellow, how does this guy have any learning, they ask. Now by learning, they mean the formal rabbinical studies of the Old Testament. In today's words, if I may translate it for you, in today's words they are saying, this fellow hasn't attended any of our accredited seminaries. How then does he dare to teach? And how can he teach like this? And I'd have to say that this mindset is not so strange to our day that without a seminary degree, one cannot become a minister regardless of a man's actual wisdom, regardless of his abilities. That one apparently is not even allowed to have a firm theological conviction without a seminary degree in our day, without formal training at an accredited brick-and-mortar seminary. In this respect... Beloved, we have firmly bought into the Greek academy model of higher learning that you have to come to a brick-and-mortar institution and be trained there by, by union card-carrying professors. Otherwise, you're not taken for real. You see, the New Testament church went without seminaries for 1,500 years. As seminaries have their origin in the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation after the Council of Trent. Now, I'm not categorically against seminaries, to be sure. But I'm against the mindset that equalizes a seminary degree with knowledge, with wisdom, with understanding, with insight, with ability. But not only with respect to seminaries do we think like the Jewish leaders in our text. It amazes me again and again how strong the assumption seems to be in this country that everyone must have a college degree and that without such a degree you are almost considered a second-class person. Having taught at colleges and universities for close to 20 years, I can tell you firsthand, and I will stand with this opinion at all times, that there is hardly a greater ripoff than most colleges. That there is hardly a worse deal that you can get for your hard-earned money than the average, even so-called Christian or even so-called Reformed college or university. Let me explain why there even are 
so-called institutions of higher learning or colleges or universities, and why you are being pressured all the time to send your children there. They pressure you by making you believe that without college education you are basically worthless and not allowed to think for yourself. They create beautiful campuses. This was the strangest thing for me coming to this country. That the college campuses look like, like Disneyland's more than places of learning. They create these beautiful campuses with lots of entertainment, places that look more like vacation resorts than places of learning and hard work. And Hollywood for decades has been producing all these wonderful movies that present the college years at the best years of one's life. And suddenly it's not college anymore, but it becomes the college experience. It's the college experience. You have to have it or you haven't lived. And all of it just to brainwash the next generation into an anti-Christian worldview uniformity. That's the hard truth. And the vast majority of Christians buy it. And they even risk financial ruin. And they send their precious children to these places of brainwashing and manipulation. And then they're all surprised when their children have been gaslighted massively. And have spiritually drowned in this great college experience. I've seen case after case after case where children of conservative Christian and conservative Reformed homes were sent to college, their parents thinking they're in good, good hands, and they come back as rebels, as anti-Christian rebels, being turned firmly against their own parents. Case after case after case. But you cannot mention it, because these are our universities. Well, I don't know about you, but they're not mine. For the same reasons... There are public schools all over the world and governments who, who would love nothing more than public education, government-run education to be compulsory for every child. It's not because they're so interested in your well-being. It's not that they're so interested in your children doing well. It is because it is the best opportunity to brainwash generations to come into their anti-Christian mindsets. And all this because they want to synchronize all of society into their thinking to mold the next generation's worldview while they're still young and impressionable and how impressionable they are. I dare say that most of the problems on a human level that we see in our streets right now is the educational sector who has firmly brainwashed the next generation. You have no idea how impressionable they are. They would believe anything if the professor is just nice and winsome. They are told they are smart and they need to be discerning. But they also tell them what discerning means. And what to believe when you are discerning. And we are presently losing a whole generation of our children to these liars in their ivory towers. And we've made peace with that because you don't touch those. They're our colleges. Yes, they were maybe at some point. Going back to seminaries, often seminaries turn out clones of their professors who are not very qualified often to do pastoral work since they were trained by academics who never were pastors 
and not by actual pastors who actually do what they teach. And that's why there is so little real preaching in our pulpits. But so many glorified Bible studies and academic lectures, anemic and dead. This was the direct part. Let us go back to our passage. So the Jewish leaders, they have exactly this mindset. They have exactly this mindset. How dare this man teach without a degree from one of our seminary? How dare he speak up and has an opinion without our only approved union card? So Jesus answered them in verse 16. It's interesting to see how he responds to this. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. That's his accreditation. That's his credentials. His teaching is the teaching of God and not the teaching of man. And this is an option that the Jews or the leaders had never considered. They never asked themselves, what if Jesus really is who he claims to be? What if he really is the Son of God and thereby God himself? No, for them Jesus was a fraud. He was a blasphemer and an imposter. As their hearts were darkened, they were unable to see any truth. For them, there was only one conclusion. Since Jesus was not enrolled in any of their accredited uh, places of, of education, his teachings must be his own ideas, products of his own imagination. The third possibility that he truly taught God's word was not even an option for them. And Jesus continues saying, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And, beloved, this is remarkable. We must see what is happening here. These Jewish leaders dared to judge the Lord Jesus Christ's teaching. Those who were blind dared to judge the one who is truth personified. And Jesus explains to them that they don't understand the truth because they're not obedient to the truth. They're not willing to obey the truth. They're rebellious. Or in other words, he's saying, you wouldn't recognize God's truth even if it hit you between the eyes because you're not of the truth and you hate the truth. And this is an important lesson for us indeed. If there is no obedient heart, then there is no insight. But if there is an obedient heart, there will be insight. And where there is insight, it leads to more obedience, which in turn leads to more insight. And you have a wonderful circle upwards. This is a well-kept secret, that obedience causes insight. And this insight causes more obedience. You will not receive understanding. You will not receive wisdom. You will not receive insight if you are not willing to submit your whole life under this insight, under this understanding, under this wisdom. If we truly love him, we will keep his commandments, as Jesus teaches in John 14. But that's not all, because if you read on in John 14, we learn furthermore that if we love him and keep his commandments indeed, he will also give us the spirit of truth. 
You understand what this means? As we obey and receive more insight and obey more, it's not only that. It's not only that we get smarter and smarter and smarter, but we also receive the Spirit. And this is why obedient people, even among Christians, have more wisdom, more understanding, and more insight than those who are less obedient. I cannot say disobedient. If disobedience characterizes you, you're not a Christian. We can only talk about more or less obedient. There's degrees in our obedience. Even if you look over the whole course of your life, there's phases of more and of less obedience. It's a sad fact of sin, of arrest, of uh, the old nature remaining in us. But as you become obedient, as you resolve, for example, you sit here this morning, you said, yeah, I'm hearing this. I'm resolved to, to, to uh, examine my whole life, to, to devote it all to him again, and to follow him, and to do whatever he wills, and to show my gratitude through all my life. You will make the wonderful experience that while you're doing this, and while you resolve to do this, you will grow. And that is called sanctification. That's sanctification. It's not a vicious circle, it's the opposite, it's a circle upwards. You obey, you gain more insight. You gain more of the Holy Spirit. You have more insight, you obey more, you gain more of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly, you're living, if I may use this term, victoriously, and not as a defeatist. Oh, I know many of you struggle. You think, oh, I want to be a Christian. Oh, I want to follow him. Oh, I want to live victoriously. I want to control my tongue. I don't want to be greedy. I don't want to do this. I don't want to laugh at dirty jokes. Uh, but I'm such a loser. And I, I commend you for that. You see it. You have this desire. Take this passage's advice and start somewhere. Go home or even now in your heart say, Lord, I want to start over again. I want to commit every area of my life to you. Please help me, Holy Spirit. And then do whatever you can, knowing that God is with you. And study his word. And as you study his word, you receive more of an understanding of who he is. God is not a principle. Young people, please listen to me. You all come faithfully to catechism class. And you hear the wonderful Heidelberg Catechism. You hear about the Belgian Confession and about the Canons of Dort. And this is wonderful. You should uh, be grateful for it. But never forget that these three forms of unity talk about a person. A real person. And as you study the self-revelation of this person, his word, you will suddenly realize he is really a person. You will learn what he loves. You learn what he hates. You learn, as you read the narrative in the Old Testament, for example, how he's dealing with his people. And as you read and read and read, suddenly you realize, man, I'm beginning to know him on a personal level. And your obedience will improve. Your faith will improve. You will be stronger. Don't be discouraged now. Wherever you are, how, how miserable your Christian life might be up to this point, first of all, understand it's all grace anyway. But restart today. And go from this constant downward spiral, go upwards by the strength of God through His Holy Spirit. Now here's what Jesus is saying in verse 17. 
Instead of the Jews examining his formal qualifications and credentials, Christ examines their hearts, whether they are obedient to the truth and ultimately if they're born again, to which, of course, we have to give a negative answer. They're the opposite. They hate his teaching. They are very opposed to it. They have no insight and no will to obey. And in verse 18, he adds a second spiritual principle. And with it, he unmasks his opponents even more. He says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Now, Jesus is showing them the great contrast that is between him and them. He is saying that a true prophet... A prophet who is truly commissioned by God seeks not his own glory, but the glory of the one who sent him. A false prophet or a false preacher seeks only his own glory, his own advantage, his own improvements. You have to understand that these Jewish leaders were constantly seeking their own honor, their own glory. But Jesus was seeking the glory of the Father. And therefore, they disagreed with him, and therefore, they hated him, because he displayed before them what they were supposed to do. That they were supposed, with everything they do, to glorify God and not seek their own glory and honor. And that made them furious. And beloved, this always happens when you display the Christian life. When you display the gospel, the world hates you for this very reason. Because in you they see how they should be, and their conscience cries out in pain, Away with him! Away with him! I don't want to see him! Arrest him! Take him away! Burn him! These are not cries of joy. They're not singing Let's burn them and have some fun. No, they say, away with them. Leave us alone, the demon said. Leave us alone. That's what the world says, and that's why they hate you. And the more holy you live, the more Christ-like you are, the more their conscience hurts, the more their sore wound cries out, away with him. So you may understand what is going on in this world. Away with them. Everything that reminds them of God's standard. Everything that reminds them of who they are and who they should be. Pains them without end. And they are, as it says in Romans 18, suppressing this truth in unrighteousness. The world will go to any length to silence us. So don't be surprised by what's going on and what has been going on in history. That is a simple principle. They see the standard, they see God reflected in us, and suddenly they see who they are and how guilty they are. And it says in Romans 1.18 that they know that there is a judgment prepared for them against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's why they're arresting our brothers and sisters in Canada. That's why they're going after the church. That's why they started to burn down churches. They don't want us because in us they see God's standard and their own guilt. 
You see, that was the whole problem with these Jewish leaders. They were all about themselves. They were unconverted. They were rebellious self-worshippers. And that's why they constantly went on a collision course with the Lord Jesus Christ, since he was all about the glory of the Father, whom they claimed to serve. And he got all the attention, and they lost it. What is going on here? So Jesus exposes them on two levels. First, in their absolute unwillingness to do God's will and therefore having no understanding, no insight, and no sanctification, and no faith. And secondly, in their obsessive self-promotion rather than giving God all the glory. Because of their sinful and unregenerated hearts, they hated the one whom they officially claimed to serve. Well, how often do we see this in churches nowadays? Those who claim to serve him really work against him and hate him. I pray every single day that God expose the liars and deceivers outside but also within the church. Those who deceive. Those who claim to be servants of Christ but deceive the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus isn't done yet. But he exposes their hypocrisy even more in verse 19. And he asks... Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Now that hurt. He continues to turn the tables on them by confronting them with their own disobedience to the law. The very law they claim to uphold and protect and to keep. He had told them in verse 17 that they lacked knowledge and insight because they were disobedient to God. But now he gets more specific. Their disobedience or their lack of understanding refers to God's own law, which they claim to serve and love and know. Well, this was quite a humiliation for these Jewish leaders. And then Jesus turns to the audience. As many were listening to him exposing their leaders, he now turns to them, asking them, Why do you seek to kill me? So Jesus exposes their hearts so full of murder and hatred, and they were caught publicly. For everybody to see there in the temple courtyard of their murderous hypocrisy. That in their hearts they were already all plotting to murder the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus exposes their hearts and all of a sudden they are all on the defense and screaming at him, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. You have a demon. You can almost imagine this Mideastern hysteria flaring up. In a reflex response, they accuse the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, of having a demon. The irony is stunning. It is just grotesque what we're witnessing here. And then verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right or righteous judgment, he says. 
Now, let's unpack this step by step. Remember when we heard for the first time that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus? It was back in chapter 5, after he had healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. And it says there in chapter 5, in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That was the breaking point for the Jews. There and then they began to seriously plot to kill Jesus as they accused him of healing on the Sabbath and of claiming to be God. It is that miracle he refers to in our text in verse 21 when he says, I did one work and you all marvel at it. And he then refers to circumcision. And after reminding them that circumcision was not from Moses because they constantly claimed to be followers of Moses, he reminds them that circumcision was not of Moses or from Moses and that it had existed long before Moses. He uses this very example of circumcision and he goes for the knockout in this debate. He indicates that they, without any second thought, They would all circumcise a child on the eighth day after birth, no matter whether it was a Sabbath or not. And then verse 23 is the core of his argument. If on on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? He's saying if ceremonial cleansing of one member of the body was permissible, how can it not be permissible to actually heal a whole human body and possibly a soul? This is an, an argument from the smaller scale to the greater. He's basically saying if this is allowable, if the sign is allowable, how much more the real good deed? You're completely inconsistent. You don't understand the law. You don't have a clue what you're doing or what you're teaching. And this is what Jesus means when we read in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want on the Sabbath. That's what we often want to read. But it means there's a reason that the law of God, including the Sabbath law, was a gift for men. There are signs of a better resurrection, of an eternal Sabbath. It is good. It's not something where we should be sad and rebel against, or I cannot do anything on the Sabbath, but a gift from God. A picture of the eternal rest that we have in Jesus Christ. He's showing them that neither do they understand the law of God, nor are they by any stretch obedient to it. They were blind legalists, externalists, obsessed with merely an outward compliance with the law. And Jesus' words silenced them. They completely silenced them. There is no answer in the world that they could have given him in order to save face. And they don't even try. You can almost see one holding back, the other saying, don't make it any worse. Just be quiet. And in conclusion, Jesus summarizes the wrong assessment of the law and of him in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right or righteous judgment. 
He's meaning understand the law, understand the spirit and the letter of the law, and then judge by that. Not by your own crooked and foolish standards, by outward appearances, by seminary degrees, by titles. See the truth. This is, in a nutshell, the problem with these Jewish leaders. They were only outward oriented and they didn't understand spiritual realities at all. My dear friends, we too must be careful. We too must be careful not to become like that. We must be utterly careful that our Christianity or our Reformed Christianity is not an outward Christianity only because an exclusively outward Christianity, an external Christianity, is no Christianity at all. It might look like it. But then we go by appearances and not by the truth. Now listen carefully to what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that obedience is wrong. I'm not saying that an orderly worship is wrong. I'm not saying that a life that shows obedience to the Word of God is wrong. What I'm saying is, if it is only that, if it is only playing along, if it is only playing church or playing Christian, it is worse than just living in the world and going for the world. Because here you have people who know. Here you have people who claim to know. Who have people who claim to be followers of Christ and they are capable of deceiving many. But you can't deceive God. Children, let me address you one more time. You are very much on my heart. I'm not doing this to scold you, but I know the temptation to just live along. My dear friend, it's not enough to just be a good kid. It's not enough to just be obedient. There must be the right reason for this obedience and this reason must be your love for Jesus Christ. You obey father and mother because you love Jesus. You do not lie because you love Jesus. You do not sin because you love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only acceptable reason for sanctification. Not to play along. Not because you belong to a certain tradition or ethnicity or culture. There are godly people all over the world. They're in New Zealand, they're in Africa, they're increasingly in China. They come from a completely different cultural setting than you. And yet they love the same Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Next time you see the moon or the sun, think about it that the Chinese, your brothers and sisters in China, or in India, or in Austria, they see the same moon. Same moon. And those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ trust in the same Savior as you do. It's not about culture. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about tradition. I'm not saying that's all bad. I'm just saying that that's not it. May we be people that are not outwardly oriented God warns us in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
Oh, maybe be people that are not externalists, not outwardly oriented, not concerned all the time about appearances, not even in part, but maybe be people of pure hearts devoted to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe be people who love Jesus Christ out of a pure and loving heart. Amen. Let us pray together. Almighty God, our most gracious Lord, our God, our Redeemer, and our Savior, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for your word. It is indeed powerful. O Lord, help us that this truth that we read in your word and expounded falls deep into our hearts. Be mindful that we are sluggish, that we are slow in understanding. Oh, Holy Spirit, fill us. Let this Lord's Day be a new beginning for all of us. Touch the hearts of many of our children. May they see Jesus. And may they, with all of their hearts, want to follow him the rest of their lives. And where we as parents fail, O oh Lord, may they understand that Jesus will never fail them as we do. Help them and keep them. And help us, for we ask it in the name that is above all names, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.